Greetings and welcome to another Singing Scientist podcast. I am in Yokohama, Japan at the annual conference of the Society for Molecular Biology and Evolution. Now, this is a particularly special year because it is the 50th anniversary of something called the Neutral Theory of Molecular Evolution. And in fact, it makes good sense that the conference would be here in Japan because really the founder, the, the father of this theory, is Motu Kumura. And he was the one who、uh, first proposed it, wrote the book on the subject, and was its primary. Advocate. So, this episode is a technical one. We're going to talk about what is the neutral theory, an introduction. Okay, so in order to do that, what we're going to have to do is first define what we mean by evolution and natural selection. We'll talk briefly about something called the cost of selection, and then we'll talk about the neutral theory's claims and some of its、uh, main results. Okay, so if you're not into the science thing, you're here for the singing part of it. Uh, you feel free to skip this episode, but、um, it's really interesting and I think、uh, relevant to everyone because evolution is often taught as if it were the subject of natural selection. However, I would contend that while it is true that evolution is the domain of natural selection, evolution is not necessarily the subject. <laughs> Of natural selection. In other words, evolution and natural selection are not synonymous. And that is probably the key insight of the neutral theory of molecular evolution. So let's start off, get right to it. What do we mean by evolution? Standard textbook definition of evolution is just a change in allele frequencies over time. What's an allele? An allele is simply a variant spelling, a variant version or copy of a gene that exists in a population. The DNA code differs a little bit from the other copies. And so these alleles, these variate. Variations or variant genes can be present at different frequencies. Say, 10% of the individuals in a population might carry a particular variant, for example. Now, the way evolution proceeds. Is by these variants over time, over many generations, going to either extinction or fixation. Extinction means that a variant is lost from a population, and fixation means a variant replaces all other copies. Now, that is what is meant by evolution. It's also called an evolutionary substitution. In other words, a new mutation occurred at some time in the past. It increased in frequency, and over time, it increased all the way to 100%. It replaced the old version, the old allele. Okay, so if that's how evolution proceeds,、um, how does that come about? Well, there are really three different ways I can think of that this might happen. The first is simultaneous mutation of. Every individual at the same exact time. Now, that's so ridiculous,、um, so improbable as to be dismissed outright. I mean, why not just invoke divine intervention, right? So, because it's very unlikely that every single individual would, would mutate at the same site at the same time, that is not really taken seriously. Now, the second mechanism, which is the most well known, is natural selection. This occurs when one of the variants present in the population is better 
at leaving offspring than the others. That is, it has a higher fitness. So you can imagine that um, in, in a particular population, imagine there's a population of coyotes that have long, thick hair. They're, they're living in a very hot climate, and they would benefit from having shorter, uh, shorter, finer hair because they overheat. So you can imagine that if, an, if a mutation occurred, this is a very simple example, but if a mutation occurred that, uh, that allowed its carrier to have finer hair or shorter hair, it might not overheat, it might enjoy uh, better success, better health, uh, better levels of activity, and it might, as a result, leave more offspring than carriers of the other type of that gene. Now, when that happens, in other words, when there's differential reproduction between different variations, genetic variations in a population, that is what drives natural selection. Natural selection, in other words, is the result of differential reproduction that has a genetic basis. So, even though natural selection, that is, um, differential propagation of the most fit variants within a population, even though that is the most well-known and most popular mechanism of evolution, there's another one, and it's random genetic drift. So, what genetic drift says is that actually there don't need to be differences in fitness between variants in order for one of them to substitute, in order for one of them to fix. There don't have to be fitness differences. Now, how could that possibly occur? Well, it occurs for the same reason that one number might randomly win a lottery jackpot and the other might not. In other words, there is randomness in the world. Uh, populations of organisms are not infinitely large. They leave variable numbers of offspring just by chance. And as a result of just those chance fluctuations up and down over many, many generations, one allele variant can replace all the others. Now, where does this chance come in? It can come in at many different levels, could come in because of a chance environmental fluctuations, catastrophes, uh, small population sizes. It could come in because of the segregation of alleles into gametes for diploid populations, but it doesn't really matter um, because it can all be modeled together. The, the point is that there is randomness and it can lead to evolution as well. Okay, so before we explore that, which is really the domain of the neutral theory, let's just get our terms in order a little bit better when we're talking about natural selection. Selection itself can be uh, subdivided into two types, positive and negative. Now, positive selection, also known as Darwinian selection, is what you normally think of. It's when there is a mutation that is beneficial and natural selection as a result promotes it over time. It leads to its fixation. Now, there's a particular form of selection called balancing selection that doesn't lead to fixation. Instead, it leads to the maintenance of different forms at the same time, but that's kind of beyond the scope of this particular episode. Now, negative selection or purifying selection, on the other hand, is the type of selection that occurs when bad, harmful, deleterious mutations are eliminated. That is, um, there could be lethal mutations or mutations that are bad just to a little bit that its carriers uh, leave fewer offspring than they would otherwise, and as a result, those mutations get sifted out. They get filtered over many generations, okay? So, the way I like to think about this is that positive selection is the type of selection that promotes evolution, whereas on the other hand, purifying selection prevents it. 
If you think about evolution as the uh, as the arising and fixation of new variants, it makes sense that purifying selection, because it's involved in eliminating new variants, um, actually causes evolution to stop. Okay, it prevents it from happening. So positive selection is really what we're talking about when we're talking about evolution by natural selection. Now, when evolution occurs by positive natural selection, it makes sense that substitutions undergoing selection would occur more quickly than they would just by chance. And that's because there's a directional force going on. High fitness variants are leaving more offspring, and so um, over, over time that builds up, there's a direction to the process, and the substitution proceeds quite quickly. However, beneficial mutations are so rare that they usually don't do this at the same time, otherwise they'd be competing with one another. Um, and so, really, evolution by natural selection, by positive selection, is a consecutive sort of episodal phenomenon. One beneficial mutation arises and replaces all the old copies in the population once it becomes very, uh, very common. A new beneficial mutation occurs within the same genomic context, and they replace one another, one after the other, back to back. Okay, so this is when you might start asking yourself the question, well, is there any limit to what natural selection can do? <laughs> and in fact, Haldane, one of the founders of population genetics, came up with this exact question and introduced a concept called the cost of natural selection, which, in other words, is a limit to what it can do. It's, it's a limit on the rate at which evolutionary substitutions can occur. Now, writing in a paper in 1957, Haldane made, uh, made some calculations, and he reasoned that only about one substitution could occur in a population of mammalian organisms, like humans and chimps and elephants or whatever, um, every 300 generations or so. In other words, it takes 300 generations for positive selection to accomplish a single substitution of a single beneficial variant. Now think about that, 300 generations. That's actually a reasonably large amount of time when you're talking at least on the scale of the evolution of humans and chimps from their common ancestor, for example. That's only been about, you know, five to seven million, maybe 10 million years, but there's not a whole lot of time. And actually, um, if you look at modern genomics data, there are about 30 million DNA letter differences, you know, A to C to G to T, those four letters. There's 30 million locations at which there are different spellings in the genomes of humans and chimps. So if you do uh, just back of the envelope calculations, you give it 10 million years or so, that's three differences per year. In other words, one and a half substitutions would have had to occur every single year along the lineages leading to humans and chimps from their common ancestor. That is unreasonably fast. It can't be done. And the reason that it can't be done is that humans and chimps can't leave infinite numbers of offspring. So in other words, you can imagine that um, if a single beneficial mutation arose in a single human somewhere on the, on the planet, that individual would have to leave offspring to replace all the other people on the planet. Now, of course, you could say, well, you know, the population size doesn't have to be the same. You could make, uh, you could make exceptions or, or other arguments, but 
just if you take a simple model where you need to maintain a pretty constant population size and you need to accomplish an evolutionary substitution, it can't be done that fast. Picture it. Sophia Petrilla was born in 1905 in Sicily, containing one to two beneficial mutations in her genome. Within the course of a year, she gives birth to billions of babies, all of which are named Dorothy, which also contain one or two beneficial mutations every year. One of them does the same and so on. It's not gonna happen. So this is where the neutral theory came in. And in fact, the cost of selection... The, the rate limit to substitutions by natural selection was the reason Mutu Kimura proposed the, the neutral theory of molecular evolution. Now, what the neutral theory claims is really, in my mind, two major things. The first one is that most evolution occurs by random genetic drift of neutral mutations, not by selection. Now, notice that this is a different statement than saying that most mutations are neutral. Actually, most mutations could be deleterious or harmful, and the neutral theory could still apply. Why, why is that? Because deleterious or harmful mutations are the realm of purifying selection. That is selection that eliminates changes, eliminates variants. And therefore, those do not actually substitute. Those don't lead to evolution. They get eliminated. So, all the neutral theory is claiming is that, you know, it, it may be the case that many, many mutations are harmful or deleterious, but if they're not, the ones that substitute do so not by selection, but instead by random genetic drift. Okay, so that's claim number one. Claim number two is that most standing genetic variation that is observed out there in living populations at the current time, most of that genetic variation that's existing right now is neutral. So again, it's not that most mutations that occur are neutral, but instead that most mutations that um, actually are viable, that exist in living organisms that are contributing to evolution and polymorphism. Most of that is neutral as well. And in fact, the neutral theory sees evolution not as really this episodal phenomenon where beneficial mutation arises and it sweeps to fixation because it's so good. Instead, the neutral theory sees evolution as just an extension of what occurs because of the genetic variation that's out there. In other words, polymorphism and evolution are two uh, parts of uh, two continuous parts of the same phenomenon. So mutations are always happening; they're always reaching intermediate frequencies just by chance. And um, if you take a snapshot at any one time, there's going to be variation. And then if you continue the process for longer, some of those variants are going to fix, some of those variants are going to go extinct, and the polymorphism that exists at the snapshot was just a phase of evolution caught in action. Okay, so as a result, uh, neutral evolution doesn't really proceed exactly like positive positive selection evolution would. In other words, it's, it's a little bit more slowly, and the substitutions are concurrent and ongoing. If you crunch some numbers using uh, the mathematical toolkit of population genetics, um, for example, if you had a population of 10,000 uh, mammalian organisms and uh, there was a beneficial mutation that, that increased fitness by about 1%, uh, that could reach fixation on average 
in about 4,000 generations. However, if it ha- occurred by drift, it would take 40,000 generations. And that's because over that time, the frequency of, of the mutation would be going up and down. It wouldn't be more fit than other copies, and it's going to happen just by chance. So, in other words, selection is much better than drift when you're talking about accomplishing a fixation of a particular mutation. If you're interested in a particular mutation being fixed, selection does a better job, both in terms of it guarantees a higher probability that the fixation will be successful, and it's going to happen faster. However, the neutral theory has an edge over selection for one very straightforward reason, and that is that beneficial mutations are really, really rare. And that makes intuitive sense, because um, if you think of our DNA as sort of an instruction book for the proteins and the regulation of the proteins that make up our bodies, it makes sense that uh, there's more ways to misspell something. There's more ways to change something for the worse than for the better. It's a lot harder to, say, take a, take a, a book or a manual and introduce random changes and get something better than you had before. It does happen. It's not theoretically impossible, but it's just unlikely and rare. On the other hand, it's also probably very likely that you'll uh, make it worse. Now, in the middle, there are changes that wouldn't really make a difference. And actually, probably most changes, except for in very key words or phrases or numbers or instructions, most changes might be neutral. That is, the reader could uh, still get the intended meaning um, to a certain extent, and, and the outcome would be the same. It's sort of similar with our DNA. Most mutations will be somewhat neutral, in that they're not going to lead to uh, the death of the organism, they're not going to change the reproductive capacity that much, and therefore they'll be selectively neutral, or neutral for all practical purposes. Now, the fact that there are lots of neutral mutations floating around gives the neutral theory something that the theory of positive selection does not have. That is, positive selection is interested in fixing a particular mutation that occur uh, that incurs a benefit. On the other hand, the neutral theory does not care which mutation gets fixed, okay? It's a crapshoot. It's a roll of the dice, and there's lots of rolls of the dice because there's lots of neutral mutations happening. In fact, in humans, the calculations are something like 50 to 100 mutations occur every generation per genome. That is, your DNA has something like 50 to 100 new mutations that were not present in either your, your mother or your father's DNA. So, Kimura recognized that this could solve the cost of selection. That is, neutral mutations are not limited by the cost of selection. So, why is that? The reason is that while selection is very much concerned with which particular mutations are the ones that get fixed, namely the beneficial ones, random genetic drift doesn't care. It doesn't care about the identities of the mutations, and um, selection has nothing to do with which ones are the ones that fix. In other words, uh, if you think of a population where there are two copies of the genome in every organism, 
each of those copies has many mutations in it. And these mutations, over time, over generations, build up to high numbers, and you eventually reach a state at which mutations are fixing every generation just by chance. Maybe one arose many, many generations ago. It became very high frequency via uh, just random fluctuations by drift. And this generation is the one in which it becomes fixed just by chance. So there is a pot, a pool of many variants floating around in populations. Now, the hallmark uh, result of the neutral theory is Kimura's uh, equation that actually the rate at which neutral mutations substitute is equal to the neutral mutation rate. Now, what what does that mean? Let's wrap our heads around that. That is to say that every generation, a certain number of, of neutral mutations reach fixation. What is that number? It's 50 to 100. In other words, it's, it's approximately the mutation rate. Now, not all of those 50 to 100 mutations might be neutral, so it's probably lower, but whatever that neutral mutation rate is, is equal to the neutral substitution rate. Now, this means that the substitution rate via genetic drift is not limited by selection, by fertility, but instead it is limited simply by the rate at which the mutations occur. Now, uh, one more concept that I think makes this much more easy to understand is if you imagine a population of one. (laughs) A single organism uh, makes up the population. Now, what does it mean for something to substitute or fix? What it means is that it reaches a frequency of 100%. So, if a new mutation arises in this population of one, by definition, it fixes, right? Because if it's there, there's only one organism, and it is fixed. So, in other words, you can imagine, given that very extreme example, that, yeah, it it does make sense that if if mutations are neutral, um, that the rate at which they substitute is exactly equal to the mutation rate. Now, the reason this occurs in larger populations is because over time, all the mutations build up within the population. In other words, we are all highly mutant individuals. (laughs) It's just that most of those mutations are neutral. And in fact, if they weren't, you'd see a lot bigger differences in fitness between individuals than you see. So, in other words, I really see the neutral theory as the solution to Hal Dane's dilemma, the solution to the dilemma uh, proposed by the cost of selection. So, to drive that point home, uh, beneficial mutations are extremely rare. Um, They must rely on consecutive uh, episodic individual substitution events. And on the other hand, neutral mutations are very common. That is, there's I'm, I'm sure there's more than 10 per genome per generation. Um, they're all linked together, and it doesn't really matter which of those individual mutations get substituted. Many of them just substitute together, and it happens every generation because mutations are everywhere. We are all highly mutant. And in fact, if you think back to our example about the uh, 30 million single nucleotide DNA differences that exist between humans and chimpanzees, uh, you work out the numbers and you can account for that many uh, by genetic drift. So it makes really good sense. 
Now, as we're wrapping up this episode, I think this is probably a very good time to say that by no means is there unanimous agreement on anything I have just said. Uh, I, I told you that I'm at this SMBE Evolution Conference in Japan, and there has been heated debate on, on these concepts and on the neutral theory. Um, there's been a long-standing debate between what are called neutralists and selectionists, and uh, I think the debate centers around the question of how much of evolution is explained by natural selection, how much is explained by genetic drift, and really, the, the two uh, mechanisms of evolution are not mutually exclusive um, in the sense that you know, selection could apply to certain variations, to certain sites, uh, and genetic drift could apply to others. And there can be a mix of the forces going on. Particularly controversial is the uh, topic of the cost of selection, which is also known in a different way as mutational load or substitutional load. Um, Dan Grauer at this conference uh, presented some, some load-based arguments. Um, most people in the Masatoshi Ney camp think that they're compelling arguments. Um, on the other hand, Warren Ewens uh, doesn't think load is compelling or relevant. Um, Adam Air Walker stood up at Dan Grauer's talk to say that something called soft selection um, can can solve certain issues uh, having to do with load so that maybe there isn't such a cost of selection after all. All of these are interesting questions and not ones that you should take my, my answer for, but I do think that this is a good representation of the types of, of solutions that the neutral theory can provide and the reasons it was proposed in the first place. And um, we're going to stop here but uh, I'm looking forward to perhaps in a future episode talking about different ways to detect natural selection, um, some other reasons from more modern data that I think are compelling reasons to accept the near universality of the, of the neutral theory. Um, but, but all of this is open to debate and discussion. So with that, I will end, and uh, thanks for joining me for this Singing Scientist podcast on a quite technical and murky topic. Um, if you made it this far, you must really be interested, and I'm thank you for uh, thanking you for sticking with me. Just to close, I will remind you of the words of Richard Rohr: "The best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better." Go to it. <laughs>